Good morning. I join with Sean in uh, welcoming all those who are here this morning, especially those who are visiting. Uh, it is good to see you. It's good to see the brethren as well. I'm grateful uh, that I have a spiritual family in Tennessee that I get to go and see uh, a couple of times a year and work beside in God's kingdom. But I'm even more grateful for uh, the faces I see this morning and my spiritual family here uh, with whom I get to work the rest of the year, just about. Uh, I'm grateful for the fellowship that we share and the love that we share for one another. Uh, if you have your Bible with you and you want to open it up to Genesis chapter 1, that's where we're going to begin here in just a second. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. But before we do, I want to give you a little context for that reading from Genesis 1 uh, this morning. In December 1968, the largest rocket that had ever been built by mankind, you know it as the Saturn V, blasted off from Florida for the first time. It carried astronauts Frank Borman, Jim Lovell and Bill Anders into space for Apollo 8. Their mission specifically was to enter lunar orbit and take pictures to determine uh, suitable locations for future moon landings. And this was the first crewed spacecraft to leave low Earth orbit and the first human spaceflight to reach the moon. The crew orbited the moon 10 times without landing and then departed safely back to Earth. But those are just the basic facts. There is much more to the story. As the astronauts entered into lunar orbit on December 24th, 1968, after three days of travel from orbit around the Earth to the moon, they did a live broadcast. At the time, it was the most watched TV broadcast ever in history. And just for my own curiosity, is there anybody here who actually watched, saw that broadcast? So we have a few hands are up that actually remember that. During that broadcast, Bill Anders, uh, who was ironically the lunar module pilot for a mission that would not actually land on the moon, he looked out the window. And though they were taking pictures of the lunar surface, he looked out another window to the side, and he saw something no man had ever seen before. And he scrambled to, to turn his camera in a different direction, a, a different from what he was assigned to take. And this was the first picture that he took. And this is the iconic picture that you've probably seen before. Earthrise. The three astronauts were moved by the occasion. And they read in succession from Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 10, uh, in the Old King James Version. Uh, I don't normally preach from the Old King James. In fact, I had to scrounge this one up in order to read. But I want to read this, and I want you to imagine that you're watching this broadcast of human beings going around the moon in 1968, and those three men read these verses. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. There was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, 
Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and evening and morning were the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together in one place, and let dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. This caused uh, some stir back on the earth. In fact, uh, NASA tried to not suppress but gently suggest that such uh, overt displays of religion be saved uh, for, a more personal base, for a more personal basis uh, in future spacecrafts. And yet in July of 1969, a similar event happened with Apollo 11, uh, the actual first moon landing. Buzz Aldrin, the second man to walk on the moon, quoted from John 15 before exiting the lunar lander, but that was not heard by the general population, just by those um, at the Johnson Space Center. But on his broadcast, before returning to the lunar module, he read from Psalm 8, verses, 30, uh, verses 3 and 4, and you can see the card that he, he wrote it on, that he took with him to the moon, which says this in the old King James Version. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars, which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? These men were filled with wonder. And in fact, all the astronauts in the uh, Apollo program were believers. A visit to space reminded them how big God is and how small we are. But we do not have to be astronauts in order to see this reality. All of us should be able to clearly see God in the things that he has made. Would you turn now to the New Testament to Romans chapter 1? Romans chapter 1. We're going to read, um, beginning in verse 20, and read uh, three verses. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 20. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 20, Paul is making the very same point. Looking at the moon and the stars, what is the reality of these things as it relates to God? Paul says, for since the creation of the world, his, God's, invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. My question is, I always like to look at the pronouns when I'm reading through. I want to know who exactly the biblical writers are talking about. And so my question is, who is the they here? Who are the ones that are without excuse? Well, certainly it applies to all of us, but specifically, let's keep reading and see who he's talking about. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. The they that is mentioned here is the unrighteous. 
It is those who have rejected God despite the evidence to the contrary. Those who have ignored them. And I pray that they never becomes we, that they never becomes me, that I am one of these unbelievers. Um, as most of you know, Stephanie and I went to Tennessee this past week uh, where we work at a, at a camp that is a, a Bible camp, among other things. Um, and I, for the last several years, I've been in charge of the Bible class curriculum at that camp. Well, we had some amazing sessions this year. Uh, that sounded a little more self-serving than I intended, maybe. Uh, but they were. They were amazing sessions connecting God to the science of this world. And what we did is we invited Christian experts who believe in God because of their study and their field of expertise. So we invited doctors, engineers, a psychologist, a rocket scientist, a biologist, a meteorologist, a veterinarian, and others. And the kids learned about God and his design and his creation from these men who have seen God's design from their deep study and their field of expertise. And then those things were connected back to Scripture and what we need to do because of the evidence that provides. And the goal and prayer for the week was for the kids to see God's eternal power and Godhead, as Romans 1 and verse 20 says. That God did all of these things through his wisdom, and through his power. And of course, it is not just an affirmation from others that we were seeking or that any of us should seek. A class, no matter how cool or effective or well presented, from someone else about their faith is less important than making application to our own faith. And what Romans chapter 1 and verse 20 tells us is that we are all equipped to look and clearly see God in the things that are made. That we can see his eternal power and we can see his Godhead by simply looking around at the creation that he has made. Hundreds of years earlier in the book of Psalms, if you turn back to Psalm 19, the 19th Psalm, we already quoted David in Psalm 8. David also wrote Psalm 19. And he makes a very similar point uh, to Paul, before Paul made it, of course. And in Psalm 19, beginning in verse 1, here is what David says. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament, there's that same word we read from the old King James, that just means the expanse of heaven. Everything that we can see above the earth. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. Every day and every night we can look around us and see the things that God is revealing. Verse 3, there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. And then he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. And rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of the heaven and its circuit to the other end. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. And while we invited experts this past week to affirm their faith and their fields of expertise, no one, no one has to be an expert in some field of specific scientific study to discover what God has left for us. All we have to be is observant. 
We all only have to look around. And what Psalm 19 says is that the creation is the universal language, always declaring and proclaiming God's handiwork. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. The English Standard Version has a slightly different translation there, but the idea ultimately is the same. Though this is not a language that is spoken, it is a language that can be understood, a language that can be comprehended. And I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to disconnect from maybe the digital world or disconnect from the worries and busyness of life that, that narrows our focus down to a pinhole. Maybe the busyness of life or other distractions. I want you to disconnect from those things this week and for the rest of your life and take the time to look all around you, to see God's handiwork everywhere as a confirmation of your faith. We talk about how cool it would be for God to speak to us Well, He is every day. Day unto day utters God's speech, and night unto night reveals His knowledge. God is speaking to you. Will you listen to the language of creation? Listen to the creation. Speak the language of God. A few months ago, I was doing some research for this series um, that was presented this past weekend. And I ran across this video. Uh, maybe uh, the video was sent to me. Uh, I can't remember exactly how it was. But I'm watching this video. Um, and uh, it's a pretty, pretty cool concept. Oh, that got out of order. Let's uh, see what we can do here. I was watching this video. Um, and it was a neat concept. It was filmed in Los Angeles. And what this uh, man did, he's an astronomer and filmmaker and so forth, and uh, he took his telescope out one evening because he didn't have anything to do, he was bored, this was pre-COVID, um, and he took it out and he was just going to show people the moon in this very powerful telescope that he had. And so he would just invite people, do you want to take a look at the moon? And, and, and it was interesting, most people accepted that invitation, and so they looked through his telescope at this image of the moon. I'm reminded of our astronauts from the beginning of the lesson. And the reactions of the people seeing this up-close view of the moon was really quite amazing. Uh, people gasped in the video. Uh, people said things like, no way, that's the moon. Yeah, way, he responded to one of these young ladies. Whoa. I, didn't, I wasn't very enthusiastic about that. Whoa. That is so cool. Uh, this guy was hilarious. He's like, bro, that looks like that's just down the street, man. Like, what do you got here? That looks like that's just down the street. And I think my favorite reaction were people who looked and then looked up. And then looked in again and then looked up again. There it is. What God has placed in the sky. But you know the most common reaction? When people looked through that telescope, and it was almost instantaneous for so many of them, these were put in the video one after another, after another, after another. Oh my God. Oh my God. No way. Oh. Oh my God. Oh my God. One really drew it out. Oh my 
God. Even some of the children. Oh my God. And when I first saw that video, I was I was a little bit taken aback by that, a little bit offended, you know, not in a super genuine sort of way, but it's just like, man, like that's just such a cool video, and, and they kind of ruined it by these people taking the Lord's name in vain all of these times. And then um, it hit me, realization. Uh, I know y'all think I'm a big crier. I promise, I don't cry that often. Like once or twice a year, usually from the pulpit, you know, you you combine all this adrenaline uh, along with sincerity for what it is that I'm talking about, and like the tears just come sometimes. That's just the way it is. Um, but the hardest I've cried in the last several years was when I watched this video and, and I realized unintentionally, unwittingly, they gave exactly. And I cried right there in my office. Because their response was, oh my God. What should our response be when we are filled with wonder at God's creation? If not to cry out to Him. The one who made it and the one who made us. Seeing God's creation should cause us all to cry out in this way. And so as we head toward our applications, um, you know, a preacher has to have three points. These are my three points um, this morning. Oh my God. Oh my God. That's easy to remember, isn't it? What should be our response to these things? Our first response, I think, should be, oh, uh, that we should, we should exclaim, wow, whoa, no way, yeah way, woo. Or even like the guy said, bro, that looks like that's just down the street, man. If we doubt, we need to consider the worlds that God has made. And the heavens are a great place to start with that. We need to look up and see what God has made in this vast universe that is his. Uh, turn to Isaiah chapter 40, if you would. Uh, those of you who have heard me preach for the last 12 years, you know that Isaiah chapter 40 is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. And it describes God and His vastness and His power, but also His concern for us as His creation in terms of the things that He has made. In Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 12, here's what it says. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? So we think about all of the water that's in the world, and God holds it all in that small part, that little hollow of his hand. Who has measured the heaven with a span? Um, we understand that there were lots of ancient measurements that could be made. Uh, fingers width, a hand's breadth was your four fingers, a, uh, a cubit. We think about Noah's Ark was cubit, the tabernacle was cubit, that's from the end of your fingers to your elbow. And those things were standardized over the course of time, but that was used so that you could make quick measurements as a carpenter or building things that was somewhat standard from person to person. This says that he measures the heavens with a span. And those who were in the junior high class uh, a year or so ago ought to be able to remember this. What's a span? That's right, you hold up your hand. And so from, it's from the tip of your thumb to the end of your little finger, it's about nine inches. You can do it this way if you want. 
a span, nine inches. And it says, God measures the heavens with his span. From his thumb to his little finger. And has calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. Drop down to verse 21, if you would. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Drop down to verse 25. To whom then will you liken me, God says? For to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things. Who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name. By the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing. Verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither thinks nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And so he describes all of the stars of the heavens, this great creation that God has made, and it doesn't make him tired to do all of that. He can measure it with the span. A few years ago, um, my uh, brother-in-law and sister-in-law and their sons, my nephews, were in town. And we all took a trip down to the Johnson Space Center, NASA in Houston. And it was impressive. I mean, the amazing achievement of placing men on the moon in the late 60s. I mean, you think about that. The, the lack of computing power that they had at that time compared to now. And, and that's an incredible achievement. But if our greatest achievement as humanity is traveling from one rock in space, where we were to begin with, to another rock, the nearest, closest rock in space, and back without dying, if that's our greatest achievement, how small we are compared to God. The speed of light um, is 186,000 miles per second. And if you started at our sun and traveled at the speed of light, it would take five and a half hours to reach Pluto toward the edge of our solar system. To get to the next nearest star in our solar system, Alpha Centauri, it would take over four years traveling at the speed of light. It's 4.35 light years away from us. It would take 100,000 light years to reach the end of our Milky Way galaxy. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus walked the earth. 4,000 Abraham did. It would take 100,000 years just to reach the end of our galaxy. And it would take 10 million more light years to go from the edge of our galaxy to the beginning of the next galaxy. Scientists now see that the universe contains at least 200 billion large and medium-sized galaxies like ours, and about 100 times as many dwarf galaxies smaller than ours. And the stars in all of those galaxies add up to about 200 billion trillion stars. In an effort to detect how many stars there are in the universe, scientists focused the Hubble telescope on an empty spot in space. Um, to give you an idea of how small a spot they were focusing on, they, they focused on a spot where we could see nothing. There was just blackness. And that spot, if you were to take a drinking straw at lunch today, and you were to make that straw eight feet long, 
and you were to go out tonight and look at a blank spot in the sky looking through that drinking straw, that's how small a spot they were looking at. Okay? They left it there. They left it focused on that spot for 10 days. And it took an image that is now referred to as the Hubble Ultra Deep Field Image. And it is the deepest portrait of the visible universe that mankind has ever achieved. I'm going to give you a, a picture of that. You saw a preview just a second ago. This is the image that they took. By doing this with the Hubble telescope, they were able to see further and further to the ends of the known universe. And every day, new things came into focus as they kept it there for 10 days. Here's a closer view. Uh, maybe you can see this a little better. These bright spots, these are not individual stars. Every single one of those is a galaxy. In fact, they were able to view about 10,000 galaxies in this blank spot in the sky the size of an 8-foot uh, straw. It's incredible how big our universe is. And each of those galaxies contain billions of stars. These numbers mean nothing to us in the sense that our brains can't comprehend them. 200 billion trillion stars, if I said 50 billion trillion or a gazillion, I mean, what, what difference does that make? It's difficult for us to comprehend. But if we go back to Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 12, there's another image there that maybe we can kind of connect it to that helps us a little bit. Uh, he's measured the heaven with a span, verse 12, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure. Let's come back to the earth. And let's think about all of the sand that is in all of the world. Think about all of the grains of sand in all of the world. Anybody in here ever been to White Sands, New Mexico? Uh, that's a cool place you get to go there. Anybody else been to the beach? Any beach? Pick a beach. Most of us have. I want you to imagine all of the sun that must, uh, all of the sand that must be in the world. All of the deserts, all of the beaches, at the bottom of the ocean, at the tops of the mountains. If you were to take, this is, these are just estimates. We can't actually know how many grains of sand there are. But if you were to take every single individual grain of sand in all of the world, there would be 10,000 stars for every single grain of sand on Earth. And all of those billion trillions of stars comprise only about 1% of the total mass of the universe as we have thus far observed. You pile them all up together, that's 1%. The other 99% is what's in between. We now believe filled with dark matter and other things like that. We have no idea how it works or what exactly it does. We just think it's there. And God measures it all with his man. Truly, we should cry out to this God in awe and in wonder. God spoke it all into existence instantly. God simply spoke and it was done. And that only describes the physical universe in terms that we can come closer to grasping. The physical universe is just something God has made. God is spirit. And there is a whole other realm, the spiritual realm that is out there with the angels and the heavenly hosts. And that realm, we are told, is far, far greater than the physical realm in which we live. 
How incredible must our God be to create all of this? And what we need to do is take a look around and not just see the vastness of this universe, but the amazing design and beauty of this universe and be innocent enough to regain our sense of wonder. We need to get our wow back because there is no excuse not to be wowed by God's creation. So what do I want you to take from this lesson? The first thing is this. Look around at God's creation again. Enjoy it, appreciate it, and be moved to acknowledge the one who created it. Because God is an artist, and the universe is his canvas. But like all great works of art, it is open to all sorts of crazy and diverse interpretations, many of which were never intended by the original artist. What does God mean by the creation that he created? Well, let's go back to Psalm 19, if you would. Turn back to Psalm 19. It is interesting, we read from the first six verses, the generic name for, and I've shared this with you in the past, the generic name for God, El, is found one time in those first six verses. It's there in verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. And that word El can be used for any God. It can be used of false gods, it can be used of idols, it can be used of the one true God. But starting in verse 7, we see that there is a change. There is a change to the specific name of God. Uh, we can know God by looking at the heavens. We can know El, that there's a God out there, but we don't really know Him. We can know God exists by observing the creation, but we would not know God unless He revealed Himself to us in some specific sort of way. I mean, we ask questions like, is this God who created all of this? Is He good? Is He loving? Does he desire a relationship with me? What does he want from me? And what could I offer him? With only the creation, we would not know the answers to any of those, those questions. But because of the word of God, we can know my God, the one true God. And pointedly, he goes, the psalmist does, David, from this one use of the generic word El for God... In verses 7 through 14, seven times he uses God's personal name, Yahweh, or the word Lord in some of our Bibles in all caps. We can know our God, my God, by the revelation that he has given through his word. Read beginning in verse 7, if you would, with me. The law of the Lord, Yahweh, my God, is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord, Yahweh, is simple, making what? Wise is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them, there is great reward. And it allows us to understand ourselves, as he says in verse 12. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. 
only because God has revealed what is right to me. Verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, my mind and my actions and my words, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, Yahweh, my strength and my <coughs> redeemer. Obviously, the word of God is, is open to a certain degree of interpretation as well. But God makes clear that there is an intended truth that he desires us to get from his word, whether we get it or not. Truth is just waiting to be found and understood correctly in God's word. And so the second thing that I want you to take from this lesson, the first one, wow, right? Be awed by God's creation. The second thing is this. I want you to look into God's word to know God. And if we can help you with that, if you're a member here or if you're a visitor here, either one, there are a few things that we would love more than to sit down and study with you. The elders are available. I'm available. Um, Harold, who is both, is available, an elder and an evangelist. We would love to sit down with you from God's Word that you might know Him to teach and be taught as we strive to grow closer to our God. Which brings us to our final point. And the third thing I want you to take from this lesson. God's desire is for us to look. Yes. But not just to look. Our, his desire is for us to find Him, to find God. God is the one we are addressing. God is the one we are seeking to find. God is not hiding. He is clearly seen. Our final passage is Acts chapter 17. If you'll turn over there with me. In Acts chapter 17, Paul has come to Athens. These are very educated people in many ways, learned people, lots of knowledge, but they don't have a knowledge of the one true God. Uh, they're very religious, lots of gods, and so just to make sure that they didn't miss and offend any of the gods, they have this monument to the unknown God. And so Paul takes that opportunity to tell them about the one true God. In verse 24, he says, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he worshipped with man's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from them. Each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our very being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by hearts and man's devices. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere repent. God's desire is for us to seek Him, to seek Him diligently, to grope for Him, but ultimately His desire is for us to find Him. God wants to be found. He is close, and He has made the way for us to find Him. Um, I don't see Tim and Debbie here this morning, so it's always better to talk about people when they're gone. Uh, Tim, um, Tim and Debbie are great. They're great kids. Those who have grown up here know that, know that well. 
One of the games that, that Tim has played with the kids through the years, you've seen this, uh, maybe he's done it with your kids as well. He plays this like modified version of hide and seek where he goes and hides behind something, but he hides behind it like this. And then if the kids don't say anything, he says, you can't see me. Well, what's the point of that game? Is the point of that game for him not to be found? There's a point for them to desire enough to look and find him. He wants to be found because he wants to have a relationship. I know that's a small, silly example. But God wants to be found because he desires a relationship with you. He wants you to cry out, not in flippancy, not in vanity, in sincerity. Oh my God. I am awed by you. I want to give myself to you because you are the one and true and living God. And God is calling you, as Paul said to those in Athens in Acts chapter 17, repent. Repent, God says, and I can give you life beyond your wildest imagination. And may all of us reach the point in our faith and maturity where we desire that relationship with God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and all of our strength. Where we cry out, as the psalmist did in Psalm chapter 40 and verse 8, I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. And if we can help you to come to the Lord even this morning, why don't you come now? I'll be able to be saying. I'll be saying.